Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. Episode. Today I'm talking to Andrea Hansen, a grazer and rancher from the Black Diamond area, and you may know her from her time with the Alberta Ag and Forestry as a livestock extension specialist. Can you tell me more about your experience with forages and kind of their role in the beef industry? Well, I guess actually it goes back to when I was um, a youngster. More so, I learned a lot from my dad, who is a big proponent of the importance of forages and that we have to look after our forage and then they will help to actually look after our animals. If we don't have forage out there, uh, it gets to be pretty darn expensive to have to buy in all our feed and um, keep those those animals as healthy as possible. Then... Uh, Going from there, um, in the last while, working with Grant Lestuka and our High Legume Pasture Project with the associations was certainly a great learning experience. Um, learned a lot about the whole sandfoin um, component and, and putting that into our uh, pastures as well as that whole importance of biodiversity. Yeah, we certainly talk a lot about biodiversity up here with um, our cocktail cover crop projects. But perennial biodiversity yes. is really important too. Well, it's we've certainly seen it in the last number of years. Uh, having that biodiverse uh, pasture out there, there's always some plant that grows better than another plant depending on the conditions. And so when we have more than one species uh, or multiple species in there, there's going to be something that's going to, to work for us for that year, mm-hmm. typically, as long as we've managed our, our pastures properly so that those, uh, those, pa- those forages or those species that uh, can grow in those conditions are actually there at that time. Right. We've seen that a bit up here with, um, we've seen a lot of alcite clover just kind of spring up out of nowhere in a lot of our pastures up north because uh, of all the moisture we've gotten this Mm. year. Um, Absolutely. And with Grant Lestuka, you've talked, you've mentioned uh, some high legume pastures. I know some people are pretty scared of it because of bloat and other people are uh, on the fence because um, of soil health and that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about managing a high legume pasture and sort of how it works? Well, it, it does take management. It's, um, it's something that, uh, yeah, it, it takes management. The one thing that, uh, the sandfoin or we have sandfoin, sicer milk fetch and bird's foot trefoil are, three uh, forages, uh, legumes, which are typically our legumes are going to be higher protein, um, which is is certainly great for those growing calves and and cows to uh, milk 
better. Um, mm -hmm. But the one thing that those three legumes have got that the alfalfa doesn't is that they have tannins in them that will actually help to reduce bloat. And the research center out of Swift Current has found that putting um, a percentage of sanfoin into an alfalfa uh, crop will actually reduce the incidence of bloat very significantly. So it's there's tools out there. The nice thing about um, the forages of putting it into into sanfoin or sicer milk vetch is we can use the tools of say Alphasure and and it's a great tool to use. But if we end up with a rainstorm and there's puddles of water out there, it prevents those cows might not go in to drink like they typically would. And so then all of a sudden we have the potential for um, those animals not getting uh, what they need to reduce the incidence of bloat. Sandpoint, being out in the field, the cattle are, or the livestock are, are foraging on it as they're eating the alfalfa as well. So it really helps with um, bloat prevention. That makes sense. Yeah, I can imagine that being really handy up north because we've got lots of lakes and puddles and streams and all that sort of stuff that you can't put alpha sure in. Exactly. And and that is a, a real challenge um, when you do have when you do have other alternative uh, water sources. Mm -hmm. But like I say, it's it is a great opportunity to reduce the incidents and still get really great pounds of gain on those on those forage crops for sure we had you up to talk about uh extended grazing here a week ago so um just to summarize some of that um what do you think are kind of some of the benefits and pitfalls of extended grazing i know lots of people use those high legume pastures too for extended grazing because then you keep more of that nutrients and that protein well, there's a bunch of different, I think the benefits certainly outweigh the pitfalls. The great thing about extended grazing is it gets those animals out and uh, working for you. Uh, the nice thing as well, when I, when I was managing a lot of cows, it was really enjoyable. I would take my children out with me and we could move the electric fence uh, we would limit graze. We mm -hmm. could move that electric fence in uh, about a half an hour. It was something that my smaller children could help me with. And we could move that fence in a half an hour and feed those cows for three days. And sometimes in that cold winter, um, and, and I'd kind of watch the forecast to, to determine kind of when I was going to maybe move the next time as well to to avoid that minus 30 degree weather, but um, it was kind of satisfying to be able to look out and know that the animals were getting all they needed, um, but I didn't actually have to go out and, and uh, feed them that day because they were doing it themselves. Um, it, the other is that when I'm not having to start a tractor every day, I've got reduced 
depreciation on my vehicles too. And mm -hmm. uh, we all know that iron costs lots of money. So um, it's, it is, it is a great way to uh, utilize our uh, forages or our, our feed and, and get the cows to do it themselves. Certainly the pitfalls and, and I've seen them as well as, is a lot of snow can be a bit of a deterrent, uh, but I have seen those cows forage through uh, a foot and a half, two feet of snow, as long as it's, for that, it's it's more in a swath row so that they, they start to work on it and, and they can just keep moving that snow out of their way. It gets really tough um, when the, the worst for me, uh, swath grazing was when there'd be a Chinook and it would cause a crust to go to form over that snow and then mm -hmm. freeze again. That was really tough. Um, I've heard of guys saying that they'll throw a horse out there to paw through some of that snow that so that the cows can then kind of follow in behind and uh, start moving that snow away again and, and getting the swath. Um, and then the other part is in the springtime, if it starts to thaw and there's still, you know, plenty or, or good feed out there to work with, that you can also end up with a kind of a mess with uh, trying to swath graze in the spring mm. and the thaw is happening. More pugging and just it can make a bit of a mess of the feed. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what are three things that you really recommend people consider when they're starting, when they're planning to graze through the winter? I think number one is to know what you're working with. So get that feed test done. And yes, it might be out in a swath or it might be, you know, it, it could be just... Um, litter that that you've got out there to to utilize the thatch but know what you're working with get a feed test um when i was when i would do swath grazing the way i would feed test is i'd go around and and uh, take from the top bottom uh, sides of the swath in various places around the field and just cut it up into a box, just use scissors or something to cut it into about one inch, two inch kind of um, pieces and use the whole uh, plant that was, was swathed and then get a feed test done. Because I think we really do need to know what our animals are utilizing before we really can understand what they're, what they're going to be um, dealing with. Um, the other is to have an alternative. If something was to happen and, and there was a huge snowfall and the cattle or the livestock aren't going to be able to get out there, have an alternative way, a backup plan to make sure that um, the animals are, are going to be um, looked after. And then the third uh, recommendation for for planning that winter grazing is um, to also make sure that there is 
a way of making, ensuring that the animals have got shelter and, and uh, a source of water. Awesome. So um, I've, I know quite a few guys and even on that tour we went on last week, we had some people who were grazing uh, stockpiled perennials and there, we've got people who graze uh, annuals, cocktail crops and that sort of thing. Um, do the strategies you use for those extended grazing um, plans change much when you're grazing annuals versus perennials? Well, it would for me. Um, our perennials, for sure, it, because we've, we want those long-term, we really do need to look after them, I think, a little, a little bit uh, more carefully than we would an annual. Because mm -hmm. we know with the annuals, it's a, it's a one-year deal. And so if we kind of abuse them a little more, it's probably, well, it, it's, it's not affecting them the same because you're not planning to take them into the next year anyways. Our perennials, though, we really do want to um, manage them for a long term. We're, we're putting a significant amount of money into uh establishing those perennials so the last thing we want to do is get them established and then really just hit them so hard that all of a sudden we haven't got the uh, mixture that we had intended uh, long term. Right that makes sense and speaking of uh, establishing perennial crops I'm going to skip a little bit in the script because that's a great segue. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, when you're establishing, I know lots, I know, well, lots, I know a couple of people who uh, plant nurse crops like a barley pea mix or something like that when they're establishing a perennial pasture. Um, and do you have any thoughts on kind of how you select a nurse crop or maybe using like an annual cover crop uh, cocktail sort of thing to, as a nurse crop? Uh, for that, um, I guess the thing is what we have to really consider is what the impact is going to be on those little perennial seedlings as they're trying to grow. So I, I, nurse crops, I think, work fantastic, and it is a great way to kind of get ahead of the weeds uh, and as well um, get something out of that crop for that year mm -hmm. but we can't do it um, without being very um, considerate of our our little perennial seedlings that are going to be coming up as well so right. um, you know certainly barley oats peas that kind of thing I've I've used that in the past as a nurse crop for um, a forage establishment and and it's worked very well mm -hmm. personally i think the very best way to do it is to then use that take that nurse crop off uh as a silage crop because then we're kind of getting that uh off the field if there's weeds that are also starting to come uh you're taking those weeds off uh with the seeds as well uh at a time that 
then we're just removing all the the seed bank that could pot potentially happen in the future. It's out of there. Um, we established some perennial uh, forage here this year and uh, didn't have a nurse crop with it. Uh, we did have a very clean uh, seed bed going into it and we drilled it in. Um, there was lots of weeds that did come and in that situation what we did is we went out with a mower and just took those weeds off. Now and and that was just spread out. The one thing that we didn't get off this crop this year was any um, production other than to put it back down as biomass onto the land. Uh, but I think going forward for next year, and I guess we'll find out next spring, but I would say we've we sacrificed a little bit of, of production this year to increase our production and success in that uh, forage establishment for uh, the next year. The big thing is those little plants really need to be able to see sunlight and uh, not be uh, competing for resources with a whole bunch of other plants. So we we really do need to be watching those, uh, watching that growth uh, through the year. And if those little seedlings are starting to get choked out or shaded over and that sort of thing, I think that's when we really have to consider doing something. Mm -hmm. And baling, baling, uh, swathing and baling is an option. But again, the big thing is you want to do it as quickly as possible to be able to get those seedlings um, seeing sunlight and, and uh, not competing with, with everything else as quickly as possible. Right. The, big thing, the big thing, I think, the, the risk that we take with baling or swathing and baling is it gets rained on uh, three days later just before we're ready to bale it up and then we're sitting and waiting again for a while and that's really hard on those little plants right so um i guess back to uh extending the grazing season um do you have any thoughts on kind of the economics or cost of production when it comes to that extending the grazing season we've talked a little bit about it with like uh, less depreciation on your vehicles because you're not starting your tractor every day to go feed and that sort of stuff. But. Well, an economist, I am not. But that said, um, you know, I, I think um, there's a number of things that happen when we're able to extend the grazing season and keep those livestock out on the pastures or out on the land instead of bringing them into a corral. We're we're not having to bring all the feed to them mm -hmm. for them to then accumulate all that manure and have to move that manure out. So number one, we're we're saving um, we're saving a lot on not having to move things around the same. The other is uh, that it, with with going. Um, 
having the cattle and the livestock just out and on the field, we're doing a much better job, I think, of spreading the nutrients around um, around that field. Any time that we can um, reduce the amount that we have to uh, start a tractor and use uh, fuel that way and and just um, spend that kind of money, we're also reducing. I guess there's two ways of looking at it. We can either maximize production um, and maximize utilization, or we can reduce the amount of um, expenses. And by extending that grazing season, we are reducing our expenses quite significantly. Mm -hmm. The other really important thing, I think, when we're starting to talk about using perennials, and especially using perennials farther into the into the winter and that sort of stuff as you might end up with a field starts to get tired or something like that. So when you're rejuvenating or seeding a field to perennial crops, uh, what are some things uh, you would think about when you're selecting your, your species and your mixes and that sort of stuff to get that biodiversity in there? Um, well, I think the, the one thing that we do want to have and the key is that biodiversity. So mm-hmm. having some grasses, having some legumes, uh, there is a really good um, decision-making tool with the Beef Cattle Research Council. Um, so if a person was to Google BCRC, and it, the BCRC is part of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, they have what they call the Forage UPIC decision-making tool. And it's an interactive forage species selection tool for Western Canada. So uh, you select, if, if a person is looking to select um, forages up in the peace country, you would select Alberta as, as your zone. And then it actually, you then select, they've got peace country as actually one of the areas, as well as the brown soil zone, the dark brown soil zone, the black zone, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it it helps to specifically pinpoint those species that would work for your area. Awesome. And uh, yeah, it's a great tool um, that I think is going to get used more and more as time goes on. It's It was just uh, developed this last year. So um it's new but i think it's really exciting to have that tool to help make those uh decisions because mm-hmm. it will tell you whether or not you know i might really really like to have a certain species in my uh forage mix but if it doesn't grow in my area there's no point in me trying to it um mm-hmm. And, and put the money out for something that just isn't going to work for my area. So I'd highly recommend people um, check that forage you pick uh, decision-making tool out for figuring out their, uh, their mix. That said, I, I think having that biodiversity is really important. So having some grasses, having some legumes, uh, and and having a few different grasses and a few different legumes, not just 
uh, one of each because mm-hmm. we certainly see it down in the south country if we get really dry uh those tap-rooted plants the alfalfas and and such are really what is growing the grasses Mm -hmm. have kind of uh had to to uh, go into dormancy so um having having a selection and and having a mixture is extremely important yeah for sure well i think we've between our technical difficulties and everything else i think we've probably (laughs) (laughs) i've probably monopolized enough of your time for this morning no that's fine no worries um but is is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we kind of sign off um i guess the only other thing would be so akeem i believe is going to be talking at some point in time as well about uh, rejuvenating pastures, correct? In yes. one of in a podcast or something. Yeah. By the time this comes out, we'll have uh, we'll have done the webinars already. But yeah, we're. I'm gonna try okay. and get him on for a podcast. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I think it, I'd I'd be really interested in listening to that one too because I. I'm excited to hear that there's some work being done on the rejuvenation side of it. Mm-hmm. I guess the one thing is if they, if a person is actually using uh, or, or establishing a new pasture, completely new pasture, the one thing is to ensure that the seed bed is really firm when they're going to seed it, that it's and, and weed free. Now weed free, we also know that there's always a seed bank of weeds and and uh, seeds in that uh, soil that's that it's going to come there. It's not going to be completely weed free, but it's going to be weed free at the time of seeding, so that the seeds are are at least able to uh, have the same advantage as everything else. Um, but I, the one key there is that firm seed bed um and and sometimes uh we think that it's not going to be uh, that it's too hard but it it is amazing when we established this um forage stand here at, at black diamond this spring all we actually did was go in and uh rotary harrow so it wasn't it was never worked other than rotary harrowed and um, we had used a uh, a glyphosate to burn off any of the weeds and so it was a pretty hard seed bed um, but we had I think really good success with that yeah so and and the other I guess the other part with the firm seed bed is and and the reason we want a firm seed bed is that we also need to ensure that that uh, seed is just seeded and um, deep enough to get soil to seed contact, but not so deep that it's going to have to spend a lot of energy to germinate and get out of the ground. So right. it, we have to we have to think we're not seeding. We're not seeding these forage seeds, or we shouldn't be seeding these forage seeds 
um, at the same depth that we might seed a nurse crop of, of uh, oats and barley. Mm, because right. those we got to look at that seed and that oats and barley are, is, is quite a bit larger than any alfalfa seed or um, our grass seeds. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's to me the, the key there is a firm seed bed, shallow seeded just to, to ensure a soil to seed contact, but not so deep that we're going to end up um, burying it and it's just never going to have that chance to get out of the ground too. Right. That makes sense. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining me today, Andrea. Um, I will be putting that link to the BCRC uh, for a pick down in the description of this uh, episode along with the usual links and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, if you've got any questions, uh, you listeners have any questions about uh, anything we talked about today, feel free to reach out to PCBFA. Um, Andrea, is there anything you want to plug before we sign off? I don't think so. The only thing I would uh, encourage listeners, and you can tell me if this is going to be uh <laughs> release later but i would really encourage the, your listeners to take in uh, barry Uremcio's, um sessions that he's doing with feeding livestock uh, up in your neck of the woods in the next uh, while uh, again just because it is really important to know what we have for feeds and then how to strategically plan to ensure that our livestock are getting what they need when they need it Awesome. Yeah. And uh, by the time we put these podcasts up, those workshops will have gone by already. But we did get Barry to record a podcast episode with us. So uh, that will be episode number five. It'll go up two weeks from when this episode is posted. So you can catch uh, that. And that will hopefully have some interesting nutritional information for you guys. Excellent. Yeah. So perfect. Uh, Thank you all very much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening!